Lord, we've been singing about your faithfulness today. And we recognize that your loving kindness and your steadfast love exist forever and ever. Lord, we are so fickle. We fail often. We faint and give up hope. But you are steadfast. You are a rock. You are immovable. May we rejoice in your great faithfulness today. And may it move us to be like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've probably heard that expression, on a wing and a prayer. I've heard it, used it, but this week I just wondered what the origin of that particular phrase actually was. I thought it might be military, and it appears that it is. At least the source I googled said the origin of that phrase comes from a 1942 movie called Flying Tigers. You might remember it, World War II movie with some bit actor by the name of John Wayne. John Wayne was Captain Gordon, and apparently they had set out some planes on, planes on a bombing mission with replacement pilots. He was very much concerned as to how the mission was going, so he said to the radio operator, have you heard back yet from, uh, from the flight? And his answer was, yes, sir. They were attacked, fired on by Japanese aircraft. She's coming in on one wing and a prayer. <laughs> Can't you see the picture? You know, they've taken enemy fire, and, and one wing is horribly damaged, and they're barely able to hold the thing airborne, and they're coming in, and all they can do is pray. A wing and a prayer. It speaks of a desperate situation. And yet sometimes I think that that's the mentality we have as Christians. How are you doing, man? I'm coming in on a wing and a prayer. I'm so battered, I've been taking enemy flack, and I think I'm about ready to crash, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get home safely until Jesus comes. And we use prayer like it's, you know, the last alternative instead of the first option. <laughs> I can pray. Well, Paul ends his letter in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, not with a wing and a prayer, but a prayer and a promise. And that is totally different. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been studying about this church that is a model for us to follow. And now Paul wants to end the epistle with a benediction or perhaps even more specifically what we would call a prayer. He says in verse 23, May God himself, and even in the original language, the word himself is at the beginning of the verse. It's placed there emphatically to emphasize this is God's work, not ours, and only he can do it. May God himself. And then to give us a further indication about who this God is, he's called the God of peace. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And that's the apostles' prayer. That's the focus. And that's my prayer for us as a church 
as we began a new year, as we do work for God's kingdom in this place, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify each one of us through and through. Let's look at that just for a moment. We're talking about a prayer, right? It is a prayer, and the name of God is given to us at the very beginning. He is called the God of peace. It's important to know who you're praying to. It's important to know the character of the one that is receiving your petition. And he is called the God of peace. This is central to Pauline theology, to the the theology of all the apostles. It's central to the theme of salvation, this idea of peace. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Paul started out by saying, grace to you and peace. And this title, the God of peace, is used in many different places. Paul ending his book to the Romans, his letter to the Christians in Rome, ended in chapter 16 in verse 20, where he says, And may the God of peace crush Satan under your feet. I love the way those two come together in that verse. The God of peace, you know, we think of uh, timid maybe and tranquil. May the God of peace Wipe Satan into powder. You know, grind him into powder under your feet. And that's exactly what God wants to do through the ministry of the church is to defeat the enemy. But he's the God of peace. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians for a moment. Look Look at the way Paul ends his second letter in verse 16. Reading from a different translation, Now may the Lord of peace himself, again, it's emphatic, only he and he alone can do it. May the Lord himself, the Lord of peace, give you peace always in every situation. I love how the fact that this peace needs to dominate our lives, needs to be experienced in every circumstance, but that's his name. He is the God of peace. I think that means that God is the author of peace. I think it means that he is the one who initiates peace. I think it means that he is the depository of peace. He's the source. It's the only place you can find peace. See those ads on TV where maybe the home shopping network is trying to sell you something and they'll say, you cannot buy this in stores. This is the only place you can get it. Well, the Bible is saying here, The only place you can find peace is God. Can't get that in stores. Can't find it anywhere else. Maybe it means he is the only one whose character truly depicts real peace. No one else is at peace. No one else is peace like God is peace. If we have peace, it's derived from him. He is the God of peace. He's the one who bestows the gift. Now, in the widest sense, peace means well-being. Often we define peace as the absence of conflict. But the Bible word for peace is deeper and richer than that. The Greek word irene is where we get our English word, the name Irene. And it's a word that means tranquility, but more than that, it echoes the Hebrew word shalom, which means that you are well in every area of life. 
that there is this deep-seated contentedness. It means that once there was a, a wall between you and God, there was enmity, there was war and battle, and that's been wiped away. You're not only living in a life that is eminently well-suited, peaceful, but you are experiencing spiritual prosperity. And that's Paul's focus. I'm sure he wanted people to experience human peace in this world, but he wanted them to experience spiritual prosperity. Remember Jesus when he was talking to his disciples? He said, my peace I give you. And he compared it to what? The world's peace. And he says, my peace is not like the world. The peace I give you is lasting. It's deep. It's real. The peace the world gives to you is shallow, temporary, and it's a mirage. My peace I give to you. And let that peace rule in your heart, Colossians 3.16. Let the peace of Christ become the umpire of your soul. It tells you when you're out, and it tells you when you're safe. Let the peace of Christ so rule in your heart that you know when you're right with God and you know when you're wrong with God and quickly rectify the situation. Let the peace of Christ rule in your life. That's the kind of peace that God offers and gives. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God is sin being removed, the absence of conflict. But then the establishment of this wholesome, wonderful, life-sharing relationship so that God and his character is blessed toward us. We experience what it is to be like God. I don't mean that we become God. I mean we share in these wonderful attributes of God, one of the greatest being peace. That's who he is. This God of peace, notice the next part of the verse, wants you to be holy. He wants you to be sanctified through and through. In fact, some translations have it. He wants you to be totally sanctified. Total sanctification. It's a compound Greek word that means whole and complete. He wants you to be wholly complete, totally sanctified. Or the NIV has a great translation. Sanctified through and through. So that the totality of your person, every part is included. Nothing is excluded. All of you, sanctified. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I say, wow, is that possible? Can a human being be totally sanctified? You say, well, Paul said it. It must be true. In my study of the scriptures, I find that everywhere else we're told we will never be sinless until we see the sinless Savior. We will never be perfect in this life. So what Paul is doing here is not so much praying that they will experience this total sanctification in the sense that they can arrive and be just like God. Someone put it this way. Uh, it is a prayer. They don't have it in possession. They have it in petition. 
The Apostle Paul is aiming very high. He's asking for nothing less than radical transformation. That every part of the individual becomes sinless. That's his ideal. It's a matter of hope. But it's not a matter of experience. Remember the Apostle Paul said, I've not yet arrived, but I press toward the mark. Philippians 3. What's the mark? Total sanctification. Have you arrived, Paul? <laughs> no, I haven't. If Paul hasn't arrived, I don't think I should say I have either. And the moment you say you've arrived, you've just sinned and you've not arrived. Because no one is sinless this side of glory. But Paul says that's where we're aiming and that's where we're going and that's what we long for. That no part of your life, outward or inward, would, inward, would remain outside of the scope of God's sanctifying grace. May you be sanctified through and through. In other words, Paul was not satisfied with his converts taking a few baby steps to become holy. He wanted them to make good progress. Every day of your life. Some of you came to Christ and you made a little bit of progress and you thought, well, this is enough. No, it's not. If you're not completely sanctified, and I know you aren't, then you've got room to grow. So push on. Take some more ground. Go forward. That's what Paul is praying for. And, and we know that there is a human side to sanctification. It's kind of us yielding to God. But this verse tells us God is the one who sanctifies. May God himself, he and he alone, the God of peace, sanctify you. It's his work, not ours. We are responsible to see that it's done. We cooperate by yielding to him. But only God can sanctify us. One can plant and one can water, but only God can make things grow. It's kind of like I can't dilate my pupils by my own power, but I can walk out in the sunlight and see that it happens. I cannot make myself grow spiritually, but I can get into the presence of the Son of Righteousness and look at the light of the Word of God, and that will begin to change me. I'm responsible to get in the light. It's God's work, not man. Now, the second part of that verse really says the same thing as the first part. Look at verse 23. He goes on to say, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or when he appears. Now, some people read that verse and say, Aha, man has three parts to him. Soul and spirit are separated. So man is body and man is soul and man is spirit. Now, I don't think this is a, a theological statement on anthropology, on the nature of man. If it were, you could take what is said in the Gospels, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and make man into four parts instead of three. No, Paul is just saying what he said the first, in the first line, that you would be sanctified through and through. That is, every part of your being, however you look at it, 
your soul, your spirit, your mind, your body, may it all be kept blameless when Jesus comes, because when Jesus comes, that's when judgment takes place for believers, the judgment seat of Christ. And you don't want to be ashamed that it's coming. You don't want to find yourself doing that which would bring remorse and guilt and shame when Jesus appears. So Paul is praying that this God of peace would sanctify every part of you, that you would go just beyond baby steps to thorough sanctification, that you would grow deep in Christ. That's his goal. And that's the work of God, so that when Jesus returns, you're blameless. It's not that you don't have any sin, but that it's you are sincerely following the Savior. And as you follow him, there's forgiveness. That's where the peace comes from. As you follow him, there is the attempt of obedience, even though all of our obedience can be wrought with failure. Even the best of our obedience has its cracks to it and its insincerity. The Bible tells us God wants us holy. You say, how could that ever happen? Well, look at verse 24. We go from the prayer to the promise. Here it is. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We were given the name, the peace of God, when we started our prayer. Now, in this promise, is the characteristic of the faithfulness of God. This attribute that says that God never changes, and he has always been loyal to his word. He cannot lie. He must keep his covenant oath and promise. As Pastor Doug read earlier from 1 Peter, the fact that these precious promises, they're designed to help us become partakers, to experience the divine nature. You see, God is concerned about having you come to Christ and finding peace and then having Christ formed in your life. And the one who calls you to holiness... By the way, that phrase, calls, is in the present tense. He continues to call you. He calls the unbeliever to faith. He calls the believer to holiness. He continues to call you every day. The one who calls you to be thoroughly sanctified is faithful. He's going to honor his promises. And by the way, he will do it. So look at the promise that starts out with the faithfulness of God. I don't think we think about the faithfulness of God enough. Our God is faithful. You know, we sang a moment ago this great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I, I enjoy reading the hymn stories behind these wonderful sacred songs. Often the hymn stories are quite amazing. You know, someone's drowning and they're saved and they write a hymn. Someone is shot at in war and the bullets never pierce their body and they write a hymn. All these great stories. Well, I love the story behind Great is Thy Faithfulness because the author, Thomas, is it Chisholm, says nothing happened. He has no great story behind this hymn. He was a man of rather weak constitution 
And he had a rough time keeping a job all of his life. But as he got nearer to the end of his life, he'd lived many years, he realized that even though he struggled, God always gave him a job and God always provided for him. And he sat down and wrote these words, Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there's no shadow of turning with thee. You never change. Your compassions never fail. And he brings all of these rich truths about the faithfulness of God. Well, he sent this hymn to a friend of his, an um, uh, individual who was a publisher by the name of Ryan, and he put the tune to it. He was also a composer. And because the author, Thomas, was at Moody Bible Institute, he shared it with some friends there, and the president of Moody Bible Institute liked it. And soon Billy Graham found it and liked it and started using it in his crusades, and we like it and use it in our services, and it's just a great hymn. So rich in theology, but so well known that we sing it without thinking about it, don't we? We can sing great is thy faithfulness and be multitask and do 50 other things because we know the words so well. Instead of being awestruck that God is faithful to the unfaithful, to us. If I don't remain faithful, he still remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He's made a promise he's going to keep it. God is utterly faithful. We mentioned a definition of prayer a couple weeks ago, and it's become my favorite definition. Prayer is a confession of utter dependence upon God, the God who is utterly dependable. And here it is. Prayer is a confession of my utter dependence upon God, the God who is utterly dependable. He's always faithful. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God who has called you to have fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. He's faithful. He called you to have fellowship with his son. Now, you can't have fellowship with Jesus unless you walk in the light. If you walk in the darkness, you cannot have fellowship with him because God is light. In him is no darkness at all. That's why you've got to be sanctified. You've been called to have fellowship with his son. You cannot have fellowship with Christ unless you're growing and walking in some kind of holy life. And because I want to fulfill my calling... I better grow in grace. I better grow in God. I better become more like Jesus. But here's the good thing. Even though there is what we might call positional sanctification, which is very much like justification, I believe and immediately I'm set apart for God. Hebrews 10.10 says we have been, past tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're sanctified. We're set apart. But most times when the scripture uses the idea of sanctification, it's talking about progressive sanctification, not positional, where I am growing more like Christ every day or should be. The neat thing about that is that it is not my work, it's God's work, verse 23. He himself, the God of peace, must sanctify you through and through. And he is faithful to what he has promised, and he will do it. In other words, it says he will make it happen. I think that's the translation from the New Living Translation. He will make it happen. 
Remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, what's the rest of it? We'll perform it. We'll bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you won't stop until it's done. We love to quote Romans 8, 28 and forget that that verse cannot stand alone without 29 and 30. Romans 8, 28 says, All things happen for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Right? What's his purpose? Verse 29, Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, we get really nervous about that word predestination, but it's used five times in the New Testament, always referring to a believer. And here in Romans 8, it says all things happen for good because God is orchestrating those things because if you're a believer, he has predestined you to be like Jesus. He is so happy with his son that God the Father has determined to populate eternity with people just like him. He has saved you, and he is not going to let you go until you are like Jesus. Now, we'll never get there perfectly until glory. That's called glorification. But real Christians grow. Real Christians began to walk a holy life. Paul's not happy with a few baby steps in holiness. He wants you to be sanctified through and through. Are you there yet? No. So God must still be working on you. By the way, God is more concerned about your holiness than he is, he is your happiness. That's not because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy. Some divine ogre who delights in you being miserable. It's simply because he knows that the path to happiness is holiness. Can't get there any other way. If you're a believer, you cannot live a happy life without living a holy life. You cannot. You're constitutionally so designed now as a new creature in Christ that you must be growing in grace or there's not satisfaction and peace and happiness. And if you can live a life without growing in holiness and be happy, yikes. How do you know you're a believer? I'm not saying perfect sanctification. We'll never get there. And we're accepted into heaven based not on our righteousness, but God's. Praise the Lord for that. But isn't it nice to know that the one who calls us to be holy has determined to make us so? Someone put it this way. It's profoundly satisfying to the believer that in the last resort, what matters is not my feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on me. He won't let me go. And he's going to make me just like his son. And that is greatly encouraging. So I'm not making it to heaven on a wing and a prayer. I'm making it to heaven on a prayer and a promise. And although I've taken some flack and the enemies hit me several times, in Christ Jesus, I am more than a conqueror and victorious. Now, Paul ends the letter with a few comments. Let me just briefly state, in verse 25, he asks for prayer. 
Three times Paul has prayed for them, and now he's saying, I want you to pray for me. Notice the warmth, brothers. Notice the humility, pray for me. This is the mighty apostle Paul. And if he still needs prayer, do you think we do? Prayer is not peripheral. Prayer is central to our work. It is the work. There is written on a monastery in Latin the words ora labora. Labora means labor or work. Ora means prayer. And that saying could be read in two ways. Number one, prayer is work. And if you've ever tried to pray for a long period of time, you know it's hard work. But the other way to read that is this way. Prayer is the work. Sometimes we think prayer gets us ready for the big task. Evangelism, preaching, getting our needs met. You know, prayer is just kind of, it's the introduction, it's the preamble, it's a prerequisite, but it's not the big deal. No, prayer is the work. And one of the greatest sins of the church of the 21st century is prayerlessness. If prayer is a confession that we are utterly dependent upon God, then what does our lack of prayer confess? I don't need him. I'm living independently. Paul says, pray for us. We've prayed for you. You pray for us. And then verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. <laughs> I just had to say something about this verse because this is really misunderstood in a lot of places. When I was a teenager, uh, I was part of a youth group for a while, and I think this was the favorite verse of the boys. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Took it out of context, of course, but uh, they thought, oh, this is cool. And uh, how come we don't do this anymore? You know, it's one of the few verses that they're really concerned about not practicing. Greet everyone with a holy kiss. This is a good example of you need to know what the Bible says, and you need to know what the Bible means by what it says. The holy kiss indeed was practiced. In fact, in the middle of the second century, it became part of the communion service. And much like we stop and shake hands with one another, um, they would, just before they have communion, give an embrace and a kiss to one another. And that was customary in the early church. But what you have to understand is that this is so culturally driven did you know that a kiss sometimes can be a handshake or even the embracing of arms? It can be a hug. It can be a kiss on either side of the face. Sometimes a kiss is bowing and never touching a person at all. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, and you, you have to catch this, he's an Englishman, <laughs> translates, uh, Give the handshake to everyone around. Give a holy handshake to everyone around. Well, that's not what the Greek says, but that's what it means in the sense of what is cultural. What I find interesting is that as time went on, they had to put some restrictions on the holy kiss because people were getting carried away. And they actually began to forbid it because it was so abused. People lost the purpose in trying to be so literal. Well, the point is, you and I need to do something than just a verbal greeting. We need to do something that is more substantial. We need to really express love in deeds of love and even expressions of love 
to one another. And then Paul says, verse 27, remember to read this letter to everyone because the apostles and their writings were soon elevated to the level of Scripture. In fact, they began to read the apostles' writings. This is a request to read them in the synagogue meeting, much like the Old Testament lesson. And so you had the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament apostles and their letters, and soon they were brought together in one book called the Bible, 66 books, and canonized, recognized as one book with equal authority, both Old and New Testament. And so Paul says, I charge you, make sure that this message is read. And then he ends with this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This was usually his final benediction. And he does it in all of his letters. Sometimes he expands upon the grace of God. Sometimes it's briefer, it's shortened and reduced. But he always focuses on grace. You and I say farewell to someone, and we hope that they farewell. We hope that they experience goodness. But Paul says, I'm not satisfied with that. I want grace to permeate your life and to accompany you in all that you do. Grace is the alpha and omega. He started with grace and peace, chapter 1, verse 1. He ends with peace and grace, the God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One final thing. You might say, well, did the message get through? You and I have been studying this book since last fall. Is the message getting through? Archaeologists have been digging among the ruins of the ancient city of Thessalonica under the modern city of Thessaloniki. You have to actually go underground to find many of the ruins. And it's hard because there's a modern city, the second largest city in all of Greece, built on top of these ruins. But they have found something interesting. In verse 23, there is a Greek word behind our English word blameless. And it's the only time it's found in the New Testament. Oh, the word blameless in the English is found several times. But the only time that this particular Greek word is used is right here. And what the archaeologist has found, and I'm not sure that they found it anywhere else, but they found it inscribed on the tombs of believers in Thessalonica were these words, blameless until he comes. Did the message get through? It did. And by the grace of God, to their dying breath, they said, I want to grow in grace and be like Jesus until he comes. I hope that's your passion. It's the apostles' prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so instructive, but it's also convicting. And we acknowledge, Lord, that Many times we're not praying as we should, and many times we're not growing like we should. But this morning we're encouraged to know that you're a God of peace who longs to see us grow into the image of Christ. And you have promised, in a faithfulness that cannot be denied, you have promised to make us so. So just as during the days of the fall of Jerusalem when Jeremiah the weeping prophet lamented, were it not for your mercies, we would be consumed. We feel the same way today. But your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Lord, we trust you. Help us to grow thoroughly 
through and through by your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.